Exodus 34. Okay, by way of background, all of which we've covered already, God brings the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage into the Sinai wilderness. <clears throat> the people of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. God descends upon it. God reveals the Ten Commandments. The people are terrified of the thunder, the lightning, the physical manifestations of God. They ask that Moses relay to them what God says. This becomes really important later. God reveals to Moses the many laws that are to govern their civil, criminal, religious life, as well as their conquest and settlement of Cana. So God is looking forward to the time when the Israelites will occupy Cana. Cana. Moses records this on a scroll of the covenant and reads it to the people. They accept the terms and are sprinkled with blood. The deal is struck. God speaks to Moses once again, telling him to climb the mountain and receive the tablets of stone written by God, the Ten Commandments. Moses is on the mountain for nearly six weeks, during which he receives not only the Ten Commandments, but a lot of instructions regarding the tabernacle construction, the ark, the table, the lampstand, a lot of you know, information on that. Six weeks. The people assume he's gone and have cast their own God, violating the first commandment. The big one. God tells Moses what the people are doing. Moses descends, see what's going on, and he's so angry, he smashes the two tablets that God had given him. Moses confronts Aaron About the idolatry, Aaron lies about it. The Lord directs the Levites to put the, the people of Israel to the sword, killing 3,000. The Lord commends the Levites for their actions. Moses goes back up the mountain, confesses the sin of people to God, and asks for forgiveness. God instructs Moses to lead the people to Canaan, importantly, telling Moses that he would not be accompanying them. This is disastrous news. Moses asks for assurances from God that their relationship continues. We'll spend some time on his state of mind later, but just put yourself in his shoes. He's a mediator now between a holy God and an utterly idolatrous people. And where are they? They're in the middle of nowhere, literally. Six weeks from food and water. Now, this is the key, I think. God tells Moses that he knows Moses by name. We'll explore what that means later. And shows him partially his glory. Kind of, you know, in researching this, uh, David Guzik talked about the glory that Moses was allowed to see as kind of like the tail of the comet. And I like that, uh, that analogy. Because no man can see God and live, so he kind of saw an afterglow. So what is, the present, what is the present situation when we start Exodus 34? Moses is rocked by what Israel has done and God's subsequent wrath. He seems very, very worried that God is going to abandon them in the wilderness. So much so that he asks, at the tail end of 33, he asks that the people's sin be counted against him personally, asks God to teach him his ways so that Moses might find favor. He seeks assurance that God's presence would accompany them. He reminds God that Israel is God's nation and asks that he might see God's glory. All kind of attempts to, to seek a, a personal reassurance from God that the relationship that he has with Moses isn't destroyed by the actions of the people. So Moses is in a tough spot. Aaron and Hur have failed him. And he's now trying to mediate on one hand. I mean, talk about polar opposites, right? So what now? 
What does God do? So God says, let's try that again. The Lord said, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So, who fashioned the tablets? Who cut them out of stone? The first time, God. The second time, Moses. Who wrote on the tablets? First time, God. Second time, God. There's a little, there's a question about that, as we'll see a bit later, but it's very, very clear to jump ahead that God wrote. What was written on the tablets, again, there's another question about this, what actually is written on the tablets, but we'll see that it's actually the Ten Commandments, the first time and the second time. Verse 2. God says to Moses, Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. So I think, I was listening to Chuck Smith's sermon on this, and he this is what I've thought forever, and I, I, I agree with him completely, that this warning from God, it, it's not like a W.C. Field, get away from me, kid, you bother me. It, it, it's not like I'm too good for you. It's actually a protection. Yeah. There's something about physical proximity that we have to be very, very cautious of, right? And so much so, in fact, that no one can look upon him and live, Right? That's what he says over and over and over. So that, that warning is, is actually a kindness. And you'll see throughout this, you'll see the kindness of God pervasive throughout this. This is the first one. Contrast this warning about physical proximity with Hebrews 4.6. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Matthew 27, 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. What's different now? We're not approaching on our own merits. We're approaching with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why we can approach the throne boldly, where they could not before. In the Old Testament times, where was God's presence? It was at first in the tabernacle, then in the the temple in Jerusalem. Who got to go? Where where in the temple? In the Holy of Holies, behind this four-inch thick veil. Who got to go in and actually physically approach the throne of grace? The throne was the mercy seat on top. The high priest once a year. That's it. We... Different, completely different situation now because of the shed blood of Christ can't approach it tonight. So I think Matthew, we, we often see Matthew 27, 51 as a, termina- as a sign of the termination of the first covenant. And it is, right? The veil is torn, it's the termination of the covenant. But it's also about that free access. Okay, verse 5. Now, the first thing, before I even read it, <clears throat> 5, 6, and 7 is one thought. In fact, there's quotes. I chopped it off. But the quote is a quote at the start of verse 5 that extends all the way to the end. That's God speaking. One thought. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the quote starts uh, halfway through verse 6. I'm sorry. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's the quote. Here's the thought. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
So we're going to kind of tear this apart, verse, piece by piece. But I think the first thing to notice is, what is Moses, what's his state of mind? Ner- nervous, cat on a hot tin roof, nervous, terribly terrified of, of the situation. Really important that God chooses to respond to that by describing himself, by giving his characteristics. So, let's go piece by piece. Remembering that it's one thought, the Lord, the Lord, all the way to the end. So, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. So what does it mean, stand? He could have come down in a cloud, assumed human form, and stood next to him, perhaps. Unlikely, since no one can look upon him and live. More likely, that stand is a form of unity. Like, I stand with Israel. Right? That's, I think, what's in view there is that when God descends and stands with Moses, there's a relationship there that he's reinforcing. The name he proclaimed. Now, when it says he proclaimed the name of the Lord, what does that mean? He said, Jehovah, and, and stop? No. What does name mean? Now, we have names... But like so many concepts in the Bible, there's kind of a dual meaning of what a name is. A name is, is, is a characteristic. It's, a, it's an attribute. So when he proclaims the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is that one thought, the Lord, the Lord, that's his name. It's a biblical expression for the whole character of God. It's not like, yeah, I know that guy, Dave. I, he, that's his name. That's not, what it, that, that's not what it's talking about there. Contrast that with Matthew 7.23, when they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, right? What is his response? I never knew you. Now, did he know them? Of course, he knew their names. There was Fred and Tom. Well, he knew them. But that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a relationship that needs to exist. So it's really important that we examine ourselves to see if we're known by name. Of course he knows our name, but are we known by name? So repetitions. This is the first, his name. This is the first part of his name. The Lord, the Lord. What does this repetition indicate? Some other examples. Abram, Abram on Mount Moriah, when the angel stayed his hand. Moses, Moses from the burning bush. Absalom, Absalom, when David learns that his son has been killed. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus' lament at the triumphal entry. My God, my God. Jesus' cry from the cross. So what's in view? Why that repetition? Well, it's a, it's a Hebrew expression of intimacy. And understanding the culture of the day, that, that is very helpful here. That, that, that intimate expression is what's in view there. So, if you like apologetics, which I can't understand... How you can answer the question, no. <laughs> a God. Now, you'll see this come up a ton. A ton. The God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. You guys invented this new stuff. It has nothing to do with the Old. The Old Testament teaches polytheism. It's right there. A God. There's many. He's one. This is God saying, there's like 50 of us. But I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, right? That's not what it means. Now, I love the ESV. However, (laughs) however, it's very interesting that 
That A, that article A in front of the noun God, is not in the Hebrew. The ESV puts it there. It's too big Dennis isn't here because I had to tip my hand. King James does not put it there. Neither does the NASB and neither does the NIV. The NIV says, it's the second bullet, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God. That's it. So, again, if, you're, if you do get engaged with people like that, which I do a lot of time, it's, you know, it's fairly easy, typically, just to go to the Hebrew, and then it becomes very, very clear. Okay. So what are the characteristics of God? What is the complete picture? Remember the name, his description of himself. I've got the first bolded, but there's a second part. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Bad luck if you're the thousandth and one. <laughs> Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God describing himself. And again, it's really crucial to remember that he uses the opportunity of Moses standing there, terrified of what's going to happen, to describe himself, to allay Moses' fears by telling Moses who he is. Where else do you see this complete picture of kindness and sternness? Romans 11.22, note then the kindness and severity of God. One of the biggest, re, the, the biggest failures of today's progressive theology is they love the kindness, but they hate the severity. They love the Jesus who eats with sinners, but they hate the Jesus who calls us to repentance and talks of the judgment. You can't skip you have to, we have to take the entire picture. That's why he gives his entire picture here. So now we get to a difficult passage. But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So, what does clear the guilty mean? What is the iniquity of the father? What does visiting the iniquity mean? Why to the third and fourth generation? Why not the fifth? And how do we put all this together with Deuteronomy 22.16? It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. How do we systematize that. Broadly, there's two options here. One is it's a, it's a statement about moral responsibility. It cascades of, of, of sin and the consequences. Number two, is it's a statement about how we often have to live with the earthly consequences of our parents' actions. If you have a father who is an alcoholic, likely you have damage. You don't escape from your family of origin unscathed. It could be that. So which one is it? I should mention, I'm sure everyone's heard generational curse, right? That, 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 I'm sure that phrase has been has heard. So, so, let's look at it piece by piece. What does clear the guilty mean? And again, there's kind of two, there's two potentials for understanding this. One is, it's, just, it's, a, it's an understanding of a moral responsibility that cascades through generations. And the second is, it's, kind of how we live with the earthly consequences of the decisions of our ancestors. Clear the guilty. So, 
In the former, it would say that God does not simply overlook sin. He does not clear the guilty. He doesn't overlook it. There's a price that has to be paid, and someone has to pay it. The only question is who? You or someone else? The second one, the, the, uh, the generational curse version, would be we would understand clear the guilty to mean we aren't unaffected by the activities of our father, of our parents. Right? If your parent moves the family to Gaza, you're going to be impacted. That, it could mean that. What about what is the iniquity of the fathers? Well, in the first, moral, cascading moral, it would mean original sin. And however we understand original sin, it's too, it's too simplistic to say Adam did it and we're blamed. And we can't get into it, but however we are to understand it, the reality is that sin entered the world through one man. And that, the consequences of that action have cascaded through history and impact every single person who has ever and ever will live. Or, <laughs> if we want to think of it as generational curse, the iniquity of the fathers would just simply be the iniquity of, of, of Aaron and everyone else, idolatry, right? It could just mean that. Well, what does visiting the iniquity mean? Is it a statement about moral responsibility? Does God punish children for something? God, does God punish a child for something their parents did? Well, no, but that's not how we're, we should understand original sin. Or, again, is it kids living with consequences of their parents? Why limit it to the third or fourth generation? If it's a generational curse, you could apply that to the generations who, were, who died in the wilderness. It was 40 years, that's roughly third or fourth, right? You could apply that, you could say that. Or, you could see, remember when I made a joke about thousand and one? That's an idiom. Steadfast love for thousands. It's called an idiom. It's like someone says, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, is it raining cats and dogs? No. There's no cats and dogs. It's an idiom. It's, it's a phrase that has a meaning that you can't figure out from looking at the words. Right? You understand what it means by usage. Thou, steadfast love for thousands, we shouldn't understand that to be a limit. It means a lot. It means a, an unspecified large number. So that's one idiom. What about third and fourth generation? Is that an idiom as well? Or are we to understand that as great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren? So I, Guzik agrees with that. That's a Hebrew idiom of continuance. It just means many, many subsequent. So although you'll see this verse often, especially popularly, um, the Bible Project, things like that, they will talk about it as a generational curse. Really, I think what's in view here is that it's talking about an original sin and a just God requires that sin be punished. Remember, we talked about how the thought continues to the end. God's giving his complete character, both sides. And I think it's a mistake to chop off the second half and try to turn that into a, a generational curse. Jeremy agreed with me. That, that's pretty rare. <laughs> I will tell you. I will tell you. And we got it on tape. Various paraphrases. Now, there's a lot of theology in paraphrases. Um, Steve likes the New Living Transition. 
translation. Now, in this case, it says the entire family is affected. They, that seems to be look, saying generational curse. The message in the Living Bible seemed to be talking moral responsibility. So which one is it? I, I, I think we've already, we've already hit that. I think the, the best way to understand that is that it's talking of our original sin. God saying, sin entered the world through one man. There is a penalty that has to be paid. The only question is who's going to pay it. And I haven't told you yet, but we're starting you guys off. And that's where we're going. Now, that isn't to say that generational curses aren't real. I think they are. I just don't think that's what's in view here. Moses' plea. And Moses, uh, verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth in worship. <clears throat> and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Remember, God said he wasn't going to go. For it is a stiff-necked people... And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. There's an enormous amount in this last bit. On what basis, or what's the reason that Moses is telling God to do this? We're stiff-necked. We're ignorant. Can God just pardon? He says, Pardon our iniquity. So I thought there can be no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. So why is Moses saying, pardon our iniquity? What's he doing there? I think what's in view there is the same thing we do every night when we're laying there, thinking about how disastrous our Christian walk was that day, and we say, God, forgive me. Right? That, that's the word we use. Now, we don't mean in a salvation sense, forgive me. It's more of just a, a Christian walk way of acknowledging that we did something wrong. So why is Moses doing this? Moses is worried about judgment in that instant. Now, they got judged a little. 3,000 people died, but it could have been a lot worse, a lot worse. He could have abandoned them, which would have been a ton worse. And that's what Moses is really afraid of. So when he says pardon, and they, they will just talk about how, how infrequent salvation is discussed in the Old Testament. Not a lot. And, and I don't think that's what's in view here. He's just saying, don't judge us. So what does it mean to be taken for an inheritance? Why is Moses asking God to take him, to take Israel as his inheritance? Us now, Hebrew culture, understanding Hebrew culture of the day, very, very helpful understanding this. What did it mean to, to be in a family? What does it mean to be inherited, right? What does it mean to have an inheritance of a family? We get money occasionally from an inheritance that doesn't, you know, if you have rich parents, it means a lot. Otherwise, you know. Uh, but at the time, there's a possession involved, right? When Moses is appealing to God to view them as a group of people that he would possess and enjoy and protect and defend, cultivate and improve and keep and preserve. That's what he's appealing for. Basically, Moses is saying, we want to belong to you. It's interesting that Moses didn't promise to do better. He didn't say, if you come, we won't do it again. Right? Which kind of would have been, you know, that, you, know you, you put yourself in those shoes and you think about how would you have... You have the, on one hand, I think at the, if God had just said that, I would be, hopefully, my reaction would be more like David's, would say, okay, well, I'm just going to throw myself on the mercy of your, your character and, and not on me. But you could also see yourself 
say, well, look, you know, just let me off the hook this one time and I won't do it again. Verse 10. So, what is his response? Again, God says, so again, Moses is pleading with him. Very similar to earlier, when God responds to Moses' plea by describing himself. What does he do? Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God responds by unilateral. What type of covenant is this? Is it unilateral? Is it conditional and unconditional? Is this a, a, a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Unconditional. There's no conditions. God's just doing it. What's the purpose? I think it's implied to allay Moses' fears. Moses is terrified. So obviously, this is God saying, okay, I, I will take you. Expressly, this is really interesting. All the people among whom you are. Who is that? Gentiles, that's the people they're kicking out. The purpose of these works is so that the surrounding nations will see what God is doing. So already you're seeing God's plan of redemption. The scope is, is getting bigger. He's anticipating that this scope is going to get bigger. Observe what, uh, verse 11, observe what I command you this day, behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitant of the land to which you go, <coughs> lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So first off, if God is driving out the inhabitants, why does Israel need an army? Seems like a simple question. Who took care of the, of the Egyptians? God, right? Did, did, was, was Israel's army utilized? And was there a rear guard action uh, occurring that Israel was doing? Nothing. No, he took care of it unilaterally. Could God have done the same thing? Of course. Occupying Canaan, there, there's a lot of parallels between Israel's conquest of Cana and our conquest attempt to conquer the self. Right? There's a lot of parallels there. And what you see is there's an our part and a his part. The Israeli army was used as the means by which God would accomplish his purposes. But it would be done, and you'll see over and over and over, every single time it would be done in such a way that only God could receive the credit. And yet it was their army. And that's exactly how sanctification is supposed to work. True sanctification occurs. We have our part to do, but true sanctification, the results would be of such a type that only God could be, could be responsible for it. God's name is Jealous. What does that mean? That we think of jealous boyfriends and jealous girlfriends. It's not, it's not a good, I, my name is jealousy, right? I, I, wouldn't, I would never use that, right? That's not, that's, not a, that's not a complimentary thing to say. And yet, that's how God describes himself. So I think J.I. Packer 
um, God's jealousy is not a compound, this is us, a compound of frustration, envy, spite, as human jealousy so often is. But it's a zealous uh, protection of a relationship. It's a, it's, 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 it's a zeal to, to protect something that's very, very important. That's the difference. So, I hope you won't think I'm sacrilegious, but I personally see a sense of humor, honestly, sneaking through sometimes. I didn't... Imagine, imagine you're Moses. You just smash the tablets, and you go up, and this is a disaster. He says, cut for yourself to, we already read this, but I didn't highlight it first. And I will write on the tablet, which you broke. Now I can just see Moses, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're right, I broke him. Now, verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. So, look, guys, if I didn't spell it out, Okay, I, I envision this in being all caps. <laughs> right? Do not make, right? So then, it's interesting that he starts restating some laws and talks about the three festivals. Now, I think he, we went over the festivals before, but I think 20,000 foot. <clears throat> They're important because two reasons. They anticipate Israel dwelling in the land. Right? So they're this group, maybe a million, who knows how many, sitting in the middle of nowhere at the base of this. And, and they're saying God is anticipating that they're going to dwell and be dispersed through this land. Because remember, the festivals, you have to travel, right? You have to travel to where God is, to where his presence is. So God is, by these festivals, he's anticipating that, they'll own, that they will possess this land and be scattered and, and need to travel. All the firstborns, oh, I should read it first. <laughs> you shall keep the, uh, verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. And this is like verbatim from Exodus 23. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, Abib was in the spring, the other two are in the fall. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock and the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem of the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Fortunately, if you don't redeem your firstborn child, you don't have to break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Why the firstborn? So there's a couple things that, that um, God says, actually, you know, this is mine. You, you need to uh, give back, right? Tithing is, is like that, right? We, we give back to God. It's not a tax, right? It's not like the government's taxing. It, God's not taxing us. We give back to him what, a portion of what he gave us, right? The firstborn in that culture, had unique, uh, uh, a, a unique position. And it's not like 10% of the firstborn is his, or 10% of all your children is his. Always the firstborn. So if you only have one, 100% of your child, children are his. And you have to buy them back. None shall appear before me empty-handed. There's two ways you can look at that. You can say, hey, God's saying, hey, you better not come empty-handed. Or, it's God saying, I'm going to provide in none of you in such a way that none of you will show up empty-handed. I think it's the latter. Verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, this is in the fall, and a feast of ingatherings, the other uh, fall festival. 
at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your border. Now again, for I will cast out nations before you. The Israeli army is actually the means by which God is accomplishing this. Three times in the year, again, we talked about how you had to travel to, to go uh, to observe these festivals. If I was Moses, the most encouraging thing God said would be the God of Israel. To me, that's God saying, okay, I'm yours, right? I'm taking you as an inheritance. The God, he, he's there that he's declaring that he is the God of Israel. Sacrificial regulations, uh, verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, <clears throat> or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's bizarre that I did... 23, when we had this discussion about what it meant to boil a, a young goat in its mother's milk. Um, no blood with anything leavened. What does that mean? I think the, it, 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 it's fairly simple. What is blood a, a, a picture of? Atonement, right? Life, atonement. What is leavened? Sin, corruption. So you can't mix atonement and life with sin and corruption. <clears throat> so this time, <coughs> what does it mean to, to not boil a young, goat, uh, a young goat in its mother? I really spent some time investigating it. This is interpreted in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is, um, is, is, is kind of the, the Israel uh, commentary on the Bible, right? The, the Mishnah the, and then the Talmud. The Mishnah interprets this as a dietary restriction and a forbidding cooking or consuming meat and milk together. Kosher kitchens will serve and handle dairy and meat products separately. And that's this. So that's how they interpret this. Perhaps it's due to the Canaanite practices of... However, when I looked it up, this is based on a Ugaritic text and, and the, the portion of the text that refers to this is actually missing. So that is a bit of an extrapolation to the, 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 they believe that it says that, but it's not, they, don't have the piece, they don't have the fragment that actually does say that. And there's been some scholarship recently that uh, kind of cast doubt on that. Preserving the dignity of the parent-child relationship? I don't know. So take your pick. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he not six weeks, almost, he neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Can you live? For 40 days without eating? Can you live for 40 days without drinking water? Impossible. Can't be done. Who else did it? Jesus in the wilderness. Same thing. Jesus said, Satan came to him and said, Are you hungry? <laughs> Obviously. But how did he respond? He said, Man does not live by bread alone, but upon every word of God. Now, we, we take that as spiritual. You know, we don't take it as actual. But actually, I think it is. In that case, he was living, actually physically sustained by the word of God, as was Moses in this one case. So actually, at least twice in human history, it has happened that people physically were nourished by the word of God. Even though we kind of take that spiritually, which I think is also true. So who wrote on the second tablets, God or Moses? <clears throat> if you read, so he was there. He, who's he? He was there with the Lord. That's Moses. He, that, he's Moses. He neither ate bread nor drank. Who's he there? Moses. And he wrote on the, 
So is that Moses also? So how do we understand that? So clearly, one uh, hermeneutics is this, is a study of how we, we interpret scripture. And one of the tenets is you, in, you interpret the clear, the unclear in light of the clear. And in verse 1, it says, cover yourself two tablets of stone, and I will write on the tablets. So why did he do that? So I find it really interesting, because what it says is that Hebrew grammar allows for that kind of pronoun switching. Ours doesn't. We would never, we would never talk like that. But theirs did. Another really good reason to under, read it through their lens, through the lens of, that, of their culture, to, to, to understand it. So takeaways. Exodus 34 provides a complete picture of God, a comprehensive picture of both sides. Sides is not a good thing, but you see what I'm saying. Kindness, Israel's complete idolatrous failure. They broke the, the first commandment. I don't think the commandments are like ranked, right? Like the first one's more important. But clearly there's an order, and that's pretty important. All, he ta- all God talked about when they were entering the land, one thing. Did he say, you know, when you go in there, uh, uh, don't charge him, rent, you know. To, he wasn't articulating behavior. He was saying, don't mix. Why? Because you'll be pulled away from worshiping me. That's the most important thing. If you, if, I think if we just keep that, all these moral failings that we, that we encounter every single day, kind of, they're, they're important. I, I think I don't want to make light of them. But the most important thing is to recognize the sovereignty of God. Sternness. That's why understanding the terms of the covenant are so crucial. We, we talked about how progressive theology loves the, the Jesus who eats with sinners and, and hates the, the Jesus who talks about the need for repentance and the coming judgment. You have to understand. That's why a complete picture is so crucial. What is the basis for God taking Israel as his inheritance? Was it because Moses was a good guy if I found favor in you? Right? That's kind of, that was Moses' appeal. But God didn't do that. God said, no, I'm going to talk about who I am, and I'm going to make, unilaterally make a covenant, because that's my plan. That's my purpose. That's what's going to happen. It's not you. It's me. That's not to say we're Calvinists. <laughs> right? We aren't. And it's a, really good, uh, it's a really good discussion of how God achieves these sovereign purposes through man's free will. But we don't believe God determines actions. The other thing he, he, he talked about in this chapter were, were things having to do with the primacy of God in our life, these festivals, for example. He talked about how it, he talked about don't become idolatrous, and he reiterated the piece he took out of 23 was the festivals and the redemption of the firstborn. Those all speak to how God has to be their primary focus. He didn't say, thou shalt not murder. Not that they should, but it's an issue of importance. So God, and I think the other thing is, and we talk about a lot about how the the, the conquest of Canaan is really a model for uh, sanctification, is that there's an our side, there's an our part and a his part. And it's so easy to get bogged down, um, like Moses did, with like appealing to God based upon something we feel like we have. And that's the wrong appeal. The appeal is to appeal to God because of who he is. Man, you guys, 
what an awesome blessing it is to just dig through the word and to hear it in a different perspective. So let's pray, you guys. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, God, that we get to come to it. And God, man, I more than thank you that it isn't about the day we've had. It's about your graciousness in our lives. It isn't about us coming to you as, as Chad so, uh, said so well, Lord God. It's, it's not about us. It's about you. Oh, Father, I thank you, Lord, that we get the opportunity to just come before you to take your word, to, to chew on it. God, I pray for the rest of this week, Lord, that we would uh, God, get a hold of the fact that you are not one-sided. You are not buddy Jesus. You are, Lord, but you're way more than that. Lord, you are so much more. You are all things, God. You are uh, God. You are Jehovah Jireh. You are our provider, Lord. You are the one that we stand in awe of in every possible way, Lord. You're the one that puts the breath in our lungs, God. You are the one that poured your wrath upon your son and pour your grace out upon us as we have accepted the work that you did on the cross for us. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for these pictures in the Old Testament of what you were what what you had planned in the new. Thank you, God, that you don't leave us or forsake us, God, that you are with us always. God, I pray, Father, now that you would just uh, give us rest this week, Lord, that you would help us, Father, not to just uh, forget what we've heard, Lord, that we would chew on it. Holy Spirit, would you continue to work this stuff out in our chest, work it out in our minds. Help us, God, to continue to process what we've heard tonight, Lord, to, to grow and learn and to apply it, Father, in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.